And as you head back, I want to invite you, invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. To Nehemiah chapter 5. While you turn there, um, let me introduce myself. My name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve uh, as one of four pastors here at Newbreed Church, and it's it's been my joy these past few weeks as we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. We are in the middle of a series, series through the book of Nehemiah, a series that's entitled A Faith That Moves Forward, Faith That Moves You Forward. And so we're just taking it chapter by chapter and looking different at different aspects of our faith. And this morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, I know we are a little, a little packed there with the kiddos in here. Everybody that needs a seat, got a seat? All right. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. And I'm not going to read Nehemiah 5 in its entirety because we got a lot, of, a lot of work to do this morning. But I just want to read into your hearing the first six verses of Nehemiah chapter 5. Hear, hear the word of the Lord. Nehemiah records that there was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. In verse 6, this is Nehemiah. He says, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. And this morning, I want to preach from the idea of a faith that prefers. A faith that prefers. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that you would give me spiritual, physical strength to preach your word to your people, for we're ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to be a little patient with me this morning. It's uh, getting over a little bit of a cold, so I might cough a little bit more and drink a little bit more water. I might not yell at you as much this morning, so you're winning. You love it, don't lie. A faith... A faith that prefers. In 1963, in in Strength to Love, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote these words. He said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And and to dive a little bit deeper, I would contend this morning that not just the measure of a man, but the measure of our faith is most clearly revealed not in times of comfort and convenience, but when challenges, controversies, and hardships arise. When we are forced to reckon with the brokenness of this world as a result of sin and how we respond in those moments. And I want to be clear I'm not just talking about challenges and controversies and hardships in your life. I'm also talking about 
when controversies, challenges, and hardship happens in the life of the people around you. you know, we're living in a cultural moment, church, that, that's quite significant. This sermon's going to be a little different this morning, so if you're visiting, come back next week. Um, <laughs> but currently, we're living in what some have called the new civil rights moment. Where questions of justice and equality are being raised, where the treatment of different people in diverse situations are being examined and, al- and analyzed, and the declaration of our day from, from all sides is one of justice. And the fact of the matter is that shouldn't scare us. It shouldn't because we are a people of justice, because our God is a God of justice. And for some of us, let's be honest, anytime we hear calls for justice, our defenses go up as if justice is somehow counter to the will of God. Now, I understand why. I do. Because there are times our defenses go up because cries for justice are divorced from righteousness. There are times when what the world says is unjust is in fact just. And similarly, there are times when the world calls things just that are clearly unjust. Because you can't understand justice divorced from righteousness. But our faith is a faith that forces us to consider the situation of others. Even more than that, our faith is a faith that calls us to love others. Think about Jesus' answer to the question in Matthew 22. All of us have heard this if we've been in church more than twice, right? Someone asked Jesus, what is, this is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he says, This is the greatest and the most important command, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul picks up on the outworking of this when he says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but what? But also to the interest of others. What I want to propose to you this morning is this. That our faith, a genuine faith, in, in, in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, a faith that saves is a faith that prefers. Especially when things are going wrong in the lives of others. And a faith that moves you forward check this out, is not separated from what is going on around you. Because the reason I said it's a little different of a sermon, because we look back at what we've looked at Nehemiah so far, right? We've taken it chapter by chapter, and we've seen, we've seen faith maintained in the midst of hardship. We saw, we saw faith in the midst of trouble. We, thought, we saw faith in process. We saw faith for a purpose. We saw faith that endures. And all of these things were, 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 were the result of opposition directly faced by Nehemiah, where he is the one who is suffering as a result, as well as the people of God. But in Nehemiah 5, it takes a little shift, because Nehemiah's not actually the one suffering in this chapter. It's the people around him. And I think it's significant that this is included in the story of Nehemiah because what chapter 5 tells us is that a faith that moves you forward is not divorced from the people around you. A faith that moves you forward is a faith that has to love others as you are loving God. And that's what we see from Nehemiah. What we see in Nehemiah is a faith that prefers And so what I want to do is I want to walk through this text and draw out a few insights as to what a faith that prefers actually looks like. So here's the first truth I want you to see this morning. 
A faith that prefers recognizes the struggle of others. A faith that prefers recognizes the struggle of others. So here's where we are in the story. You go back a couple chapters to Nehemiah chapter 3, and that communicated to us how the building of the wall was taking place in Jerusalem. You remember that? It kind of worked counterclockwise around all the gates and showed how, 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 how the walls of, rebuild, uh, of Jerusalem were being rebuilt by Nehemiah and the people of God. They were working on their specific assignments to rebuild different sections of the wall. And while this was taking place, chapter 4, what we looked at last week, it recounted the opposition and the hostility the people of God faced while they were rebuilding. Do you remember that? It was an ever-intensifying opposition. It started with mocking, then it turned into threats, then it turned into physical violence. People trying to stop the work of rebuilding the wall. And at the end of chapter 4, building wasn't stopped. It was continuing because the people were prepared to defend themselves if hostility came. But what we saw in Nehemiah 4.15 is that God had actually thwarted the plans of the enemy. So it appears at the start of chapter 5 as if outward opposition to the rebuilding, at least from those surrounding Jerusalem, that that outward opposition has at least slowed down a bit. We don't have any indication that they're actively being attacked anymore. But as we turn to chapter 5 and the people are likely coming towards the end of rebuilding the wall, another problem arises. I want you to look back what we read at the beginning. Go back to verse 1. It says, There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, We, our sons, our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. And others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, We have borrowed money to pay the king's tax On our fields and vineyards, we and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. And then verse 6, I became extremely angry when I heard the outcry and these complaints. So even as the building is progressing, it becomes known that there are some major problems among the people of God. And they're not actually coming from the outside. They're coming from the inside. They have complaints against their own countrymen, other Jews. And they bring three complaints to Nehemiah. So the first one we saw there in verses 1 and 2. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. So what we encounter is that the people of God didn't have any food. So you have to remember that in order to rebuild the wall, it meant that people left their jobs, they left their homes, and they left their families to join in this rebuilding project. And it's significant in the text there that Nehemiah mentions the people and specifically that their wives made the outcry. Because what this points to is that many of the wives were left at home while their husbands were, went to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And for most of these families, the husbands were the breadwinners of the family. So now, having gone, been gone so long, the people are starting to starve. They need food. But the reality of the situation is further explained in the second complaint there in verse 3. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. 
So, so they were so hard-pressed, right? So track with me here. I'm, I'm setting the stage, and then we're going to unpack it. They were so hard-pressed for food that they were literally borrowing money, putting their property and their sources of provision as collateral just to buy grain. And so one commentator helps explain the situation there. He says, even though that the text he, he doesn't explicitly say this, it's likely that this was occurring door, uh, towards the end of the building phase. And so that would have been the end of harvest time as well. And so farmers who had already borrowed money, they borrowed seed, they were paying workers to work the harvest, they were being required now to pay back their creditors with interest. However, the work on the wall most likely caused a shortage in the workforce for the harvest during this critical time of gathering, putting a strain on the entire agriculture system and making the conditions even worse. But did you catch that they're also in the midst of a famine? So they don't have people to work to gather what harvest they do have, but they're in the midst of a harvest, so they don't even have enough harvest as it is. So in order to pay off their debt, they're acquiring more debt. Sound familiar? I ain't got time to press into that. In order to pay off their debt, they're having to acquire more debt. So once again, they don't have food to eat. They don't have money. They don't have resources. But then a third complaint, and this really highlights the injustice of it all. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved. Like as a father, I feel the heartbrokenness of that plea, right? Like, like our daughters are already enslaved and we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So on top of the fact that it's harvest time and there aren't enough workers because people are rebuilding the wall, the people of God also have to contend with taxes that they're required to pay. So they've got to pay back their creditors, but they still have to pay taxes to King Artaxerxes because they're still under Persian rule. So let me try to give you an idea of what's going on here. Remember, they are under Persian rule. They're exiles under the reign of King Artaxerxes. Now, Persian rule was different than any other exile that they had been in before. It was different than the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The reason for it is because all those other nations forced the Jews to conform to their culture. You have to worship our gods. You have to act like us. You have to dress like us. You have to look like us. You have to talk like us. But that wasn't King Artaxerxes' strategy. That's actually why he was so successful. He didn't care if you spoke their language. He didn't care if you worshiped their gods. He didn't care if you dressed like them, act like them. He wanted one thing and one thing alone, money. And so he would actually let, King Artaxerxes would let people live in their homes. That's why he let them go back to Jerusalem. He would let them to continue to worship their gods. You remember back when he gave them permission to go in chapter 1? He says, go, worship your God. I don't care. Live your lives the way you want, but pay your taxes. And if we go to war, we're going to take some of your people to fight for us. Those taxes, though, had to be paid in gold or silver. See, that was different than any other time that Israel had been taxed. You could pay with grain, you could pay with, with food, but no, 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 King Artaxerxes wanted two things, gold and silver. There's an ancient, uh, a scholar of ancient Persia, and he explains the situation like this. This is what he writes. He says, it was, it was the custom to melt down gold and silver and to pour it into jars, which were broken, and then the bullion was stored. So like, you know, gold bars, basically, silver bars. He says, only a small portion was ever actually coined. And then usually it was for the purchase of foreign soldiers or for foreign statesmen, for 
a time. Credit made possible a continuance of business, but the unsympathetic demand for actual silver in the payment of taxes drove landlords in increasing numbers to loan sharks who gave the money in exchange for the pledge, the actual use of the field or the slave, whose services were thus lost until the improbable redemption. And as coin money became a rarity hoarded by the loan sharks, credit increased the inflation. Rapidly rising prices made the situation still more intolerable. So basically, this is what's going on. The only way that you could pay your taxes was to sacrifice your livelihood. And if you sacrificed your livelihood, the money you borrowed to pay your taxes could never be paid back and you would be forced to sell your family into slavery. Now, just to give you an idea of how much tax was collected, some of this might not interest you. It's fascinating to me, so you got to deal with it because I'm the pastor. Uh, when Alexander the Great conquered Susa, so that's one of four of the Persian capitals. There were four capitals, one of four. Just in Susa alone, King Alexander the Great found 270 tons of gold. That's 540,000 pounds of gold. And 1,200 tons of silver. That's 2,400,000 pounds of silver in just one of the four capitals. I say all that to say these are a people, the people of God, who are being severely oppressed. They're oppressed by Persia. They're oppressed by unjust lending. And it got so bad, five, that verse tells us they're being oppressed by their own countrymen and having to sell their children into slavery. Now, we have to understand slavery in ancient times was not like American chattel slavery. In the Old Testament, slavery was often a way to pay off debt. A person could sell themselves and their families into slavery in order to work off the debt. It was more like an indentured servant, someone who works without a salary to pay a debt, not so much the kidnapping that took place during American slavery. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just telling you what it is. So this is the situation that the people of God find themselves in. And Nehemiah, let's get back to our text, he recognizes the struggle that they are in. Because we see that in verse 6 in his response. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. Now I want you to pay close attention to this. Notice what Nehemiah did not do. He did not question them about whether or not they tried other things before they sold their family into slavery. He did not ask them about their budgeting practices and business models to see if their suffering was their fault. He did not require proof that they were completely innocent and not making any foolish decisions along the way that led to this suffering. He heard and he was angry. He didn't check to make sure the suffering was warranted. He didn't have to validate the circumstances of the struggle before he cared for their situation. He was simply angry that people made in the image of God were struggling. Nehemiah saw the problem, the struggle the people were facing, and he was simply angry that there was a problem. Here's why I point this all out. Let's just get into it, okay? Often when other people are struggling, when they are hurting and when they are going through it, we as Christians withhold our compassion, we withhold our empathy, we withhold our care and our very presence until we believe the pain and the struggle is justified. Let me just give you an example. Just over the past decade, And it's happened a lot longer in the past decade. It's just we got social media and YouTube and it's everywhere. But over the past decade, there have been publicized notable killings of black individuals at the hands of police. All different circumstances, all different factors to be considered. I don't care what you think about those. I'm just stating a fact, okay? We can agree on that. It's happened, hasn't it? You with me? I'm going to make you talk. 
You don't have to agree, but you're going to talk. But what has been most disheartening to me about the whole thing is the response of many Christians to the outcry, outcry from people, specifically from our minority brothers and sisters, but not just them, who are hurting and struggling because they are watching image bearers lose their lives and simply declaring that our lives matter. And the response of many Christians, rather than to recognize the genuine struggle and the pain of people, has been to evaluate the circumstances of those killings to justify or deny the real pain and the real struggle that people are facing. And the last time I checked, weeping with those who weep did not have a follow-up verse saying, only if the weeping is justified in your eyes. Uh, Maybe that's too political. We ain't ready for it. Let me give you another example. For many of us, the homeless people that you drove past this morning on the way to church Their struggle isn't recognized by you because you aren't sure whether or not the decisions they made are the reason they're homeless. We are quick to recognize the struggle of the person in that situation who who is there despite their best effort but just had circumstance after circumstance after circumstance uh, stacked against them. We will recognize that struggle more than we recognize the genuine struggle of the person who is homeless because they made all the wrong choices along the way. Is their suffering any less real? And what I'm trying to get you to see is that understanding the cause of the struggle is not necessary to genuinely recognize and care about the struggling person. It doesn't matter. Now, you might say, well, where do you get that? Well, because that's the way that God treats us. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. There is no asterisk. There is no footnote. There is no subscript. God is simply near to all those who are brokenhearted. Can I tell you what that means? It doesn't matter if you're brokenhearted because you were sinned against or you were brokenhearted because you fell once again into the same pattern. God is near. It doesn't matter if you are brokenhearted because you got that diagnosis that is completely out of your control or you are brokenhearted because you got that diagnosis that is the direct result of your foolish choices throughout your life. God is near to the brokenhearted. It doesn't matter if you are brokenhearted because you committed adultery and ruined your marriage or because you are, you are brokenhearted because your spouse committed adultery and ruined your marriage. What the Bible teaches us is that we have a God who is near. He is near in our pain. He is near in our struggle, whether it's our own making or not. He is simply near, and the results don't matter for his nearness. God's nearness to us in our struggle has never depended on the circumstances of the struggle. Can we just praise God for that? Like, I have made some stupid choices in my life, and I have been brokenhearted because of my own foolishness, and God was still near. Our God is near to the brokenhearted, and in this moment, Nehemiah models the heart of God simply by recognizing the struggle, not evaluating the circumstances. He will, but he doesn't need to to simply recognize the struggle. And he responds in frustration because people made in the image of God are hurting. But it doesn't stop there. Because second, notice this, that a faith that prefers doesn't just recognize the struggle. It intervenes in the struggle of others. It intervenes in the struggle of others. Pick back up in verse 6 with me. He says, I became extremely angry when I heard the outcry of these complaints. So just for clarity... This isn't a sinful anger. This isn't a vindictive anger. This is a righteous anger that flows out of a hatred of unrighteousness and injustice. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Let's keep going. Let me show you a few significant things about how Nehemiah intervenes in the struggle of others. First, look look at verse 7. Notice what it says. 
after seriously considering the matter. I like that. It's the first thing I underline in my Bible. After seriously considering the matter, I accuse the nobles and the officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them. So see this. After recognizing the struggle, before Nehemiah acts, he seriously considers the matter. Now, from what we know about Nehemiah so far, I'm going to use a little my sanctified imagination. It's speculation. It's not in the text, but I think it's a safe assumption. From what we know about Nehemiah, I bet he prayed about it a little bit because Nehemiah's prayed about everything. I bet he sought some wisdom. He reflected on what he'd heard. I could see Nehemiah grabbing some of his other nobles and saying, come on, let's chop it up. Let's figure out what's going on. But what I know, what I do know, is that Nehemiah's intervention was not a reaction. It was intentional action. Even with his anger, he responds initially with anger, but he doesn't act out of anger. Because he stops and seriously considers the matter. Here's why this is so important. We talked about this just a moment ago. Sometimes people's struggle is a result of living in a broken world, and it is no fault of their own. And sometimes people's struggle is the direct result of silly, sinful, and foolish decisions that they make. Now, again, you recognizing the struggle has nothing to do with the circumstances, but your intervention has everything to do with the circumstances. Because faithful intervention requires a careful consideration of the matter at hand. It's not going to do anybody good if you treat them just as a sufferer when they're a sinner as well. But it's also not going to do anybody good if you act like this is their fault when they haven't sinned at all in this matter. So, so circumstances matter for the intervention. That's why James says in James 1, 19 and 20, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. But I like what comes next, slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Why do we want to be slow to speak and quick to listen? So that we can accomplish God's righteousness. And see, stepping, stepping into someone's struggle requires careful consideration of how to best love them in that moment. And so what does Nehemiah do? Let's go back to verse 7. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, We have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners. So that's new information. Even before this has taken place, this complaint came, Nehemiah and some of the other, the other people of God have already been trying to buy people back out of slavery. And he says, so we're trying to buy them back, but now you're selling your own countrymen, and we've got to buy them back too. He says, they remained silent, and they could not say a word. He says, then I said, what you are doing isn't right. Here it is. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of foreign armies? So notice this. Nehemiah confronts the injustice. He confronts the people of God who are charging their own countrymen interest, which, by the way, is a direct violation of God's law. Right? It wasn't unjust to lend money. It was unjust to lend money and charge interest. Exodus 22, 24 through 26. Listen to how God speaks of this issue. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children father in the list. Here, if you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset. Leviticus 25, 35 through 37, if your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as an alien or a temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. Do not profit or take interest from him, but fear your God. Let your brother live among you. 
You are not to lend him your silver with interest or sell it to him or sell him your food for profit. Now, check this. It was legal under Persian law to lend with interest. It wasn't legal under divine law. We got to recognize that sometimes what the world says is just. God says, and I ain't going to work. We don't define justice and righteousness based on the world's standards. I'm going to say it again because some of you need to hear it. We don't define justice, justice and righteousness based on the world's standards. We define them based on the word of God because God is more just than the world. And he clearly knows righteousness better than the world. So Nehemiah confronts them. He calls out their sin. Then he goes further and he says, not only are you taking interest, but you're selling your own people into slavery. Again, a violation of the law of God. But notice this. Notice what Nehemiah grounds his intervention in and his confrontation in ultimately. Verse 9, then I said, what you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? So there are two things motivating Nehemiah here, above and beyond his care for the people. First is the fear of God. He's saying, listen, the people of God, we have to have such a reverence and an awe for God that it actually affects how we live. Can you believe it? It changes how we interact with people, how we care for them, how we love them. Genuinely loving God forces us to love one another. And in essence, what Nehemiah is saying is that it's not necessarily that you aren't loving your people well. It's that you're not loving God because you are a people for the glory of God. But then notice this. I love this. He says his second motivation is their testimony to the surrounding nations. And not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies. See, what Nehemiah understands is that the reputation of the people of God will always reflect back on how people see God. Track with that. Nehemiah understands that how people view the people of God will affect how they view God himself. I'm just going to call it like I see it. There are so many people today who want nothing to do with God, not because they know anything about him, but because they're watching how Christians engage with the struggle of other people. How we respond to the hurt and the pain of real people made in God's image. And they say, if your God will let you treat people like that, I want nothing to do with them. And I understand that response. They are looking at us and saying, if your God is okay with this, I don't want that God. How we respond to the hurting and the broken, how we respond to people who are genuinely struggling, struggling it says something about the God we claim to represent. And Nehemiah understands this. He understands that the testimony of the people of God is at stake. Because you remember, the Old Testament people of God were still a missional people. I believe that. Theirs just wasn't a go and tell. Theirs was a come and see. Come and watch how we live among one another. Come and watch how we love God. Come and watch how submitting to God's reign and rule leads to genuine human flourishing. That was their mission field. And what Nehemiah is saying is that we're living just like the world and we're failing in our witness and our testimony. So Nehemiah intervenes by confronting the injustice. But I want you to notice something so interesting that Nehemiah does. Look back at verse 10. He says, even I, as well as my brothers and my servants have been lending them money and grain. So Nehemiah says, I've been lending them money and grain too. And he says, please stop charging this interest. Return their fields and vineyards, olive groves and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing them. Did you catch that? Nehemiah's been lending too. 
but he's not been assessing interest. They've been assessing interest. Now, what Nehemiah does here is so significant. Please track with me here. Nehemiah doesn't even have to do this, but he intervenes in the struggle by placing himself in the struggle. He says, even I, as well as my brothers and servants, have been lending them money and grain. But please, you stop charging them interest. Here's why this is so fascinating. Again, the language in verse 11, when it comes time to restore back what was taken as interest, he doesn't say we need to do this. He says you need to do this. Because Nehemiah was lending as well, but he was not doing it or charging interest. He was lending exactly as God had commanded him. But still, he makes the problem his problem. Don't underestimate the weight of that. So let me tell, tell you a story. It's a story about me. I've been saying this a lot lately, so I don't know what it says about me. Confession's good for the soul, bad for the reputation. So I'm going to confess something to you. Um, you know, I've been, I've been pastoring in the West End for, golly, 14, almost 15 years now. Um, I, I lived in the West End as a single guy uh, when I first kind of moved back to Louisville, lived down here. It was a great house, five-star, uh, great house in, in Portland. The roof fell in on the second floor. Uh, I was still living in it when it happened. Like, after it happened, I didn't leave. Um, and I didn't fix it either. Uh, that's why I'm the way that I am. Uh, moved out because the house started falling apart. Um, met this incredible girl named Malia. Um, married her. So she wasn't just marrying me. She was also like, she wasn't just picking a husband. She was picking a pastor as well. Like, that's, a, that's a weighty thing to do because I was single pastoring. Um, I almost didn't make the cut. Uh, and so we started praying about moving back down to the West End. And for the first time in my life, I'll be honest with you, I felt fear. And it wasn't a fear for me. It was because now I have a wife to worry about. I think at the time, was Emery born yet? Emery was just, so I had my first child. And one of the thoughts that was going through my head, I'll be straight with you, is like, I, like, I love the West End, but I know the West End has struggled, and we can be real about that, right? It has its struggles. And so I'm thinking about this not just as a single dude who loves Jesus. I'm like, hey, if something happens to me, that's cool. I know where I'm going, but I'm raising a little pagan right now. <laughs> just call it like, like I see it. <laughs> so I caught my wife laughing. Um, <laughs> come on, Michael. We got this. Um, so for the first time, I had genuine fear of like, am I placing my family in a situation that is unwise? Now, for the record, my wife wasn't there. She's like, hurry up, like find a house. And I'll never forget a conversation I had with a pastor in passing at a random conference in Nashville where I was just, I just told him what I was thinking and feeling about this. And he said something to me that profoundly changed my understanding of ministry. He said this, he said, listen, Michael, I think you should go because the community struggle will never be your struggle until the community becomes your community. So I might say I care about the poor schooling options in the West End, but it's a whole different ballgame when my kid's in those schools. That's my struggle, right? It's one thing to say I care about violence taking place in particular parts of the city. It's another thing to put myself in the midst of it and say, okay, I care about it now. There's something about making the problem our problem. That's what Nehemiah does. He steps right in. He says, listen, I'm not, I'm not coming at this from a distance. This is now my problem. He places himself in the struggle. And brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you with this. I think sometimes we are so afraid to enter into the struggle because we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't know how we should act. But please hear me. Sometimes just showing up in the struggle is the greatest help. 
Like, I've been through some dark moments in my life. I'll tell you this. I went through a dark moment at Newbury. This isn't a shock to some of you. It wasn't y'all's fault. If you're still here, I love you. Um, Went through a dark season. Like, had one of the worst nights of pastoral ministry I have ever had. And I'm going to give him a shout out, right? And he's not the only one, right? Pastor Lance has done it to me countless times as well. But just, I was just weeping when I called him. And he just said, one of the pastors, and he just said, Pastor Jesse, he just said, I'm just going to come over. And he didn't say anything when he got there. He didn't do anything. He didn't try to tell me how to make it right. He put his arm around me and he cried with me. And we cried for an hour. And him just being there made all the difference because my struggle became his struggle. Pastor Lance did that recently. Some of you saw it. It was just broken before I came up and preached. He just sat down and put his arm around me. I don't know what he was praying. I don't know what he was saying. I don't really care. He was there. And he was in the struggle. And sometimes we just got to show up and trust that the same God that has called you to love will be the God who equips you to love when you need to love. And just show up in the struggle. I don't have all the answers to the injustice of the world. I don't. But I can show up. And I can make the struggle my struggle. So Nehemiah shows up. He confronts. But pay attention to how this play plays out. I'm going to pick up the pace. I'm running out of time. So he calls them to return what they had taken as interest. Look at verses 12 through 13. They responded. I love this response. We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. Now here's Nehemiah. So I summoned the priests and I made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, my God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep their promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. And the whole assembly said, amen. Don't sleep on this. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. Now here's what I want you to see. Nehemiah's actions of grabbing the priest, of shaking his robes and making this public demonstration, of making the people take an oath, it wasn't, near, it wasn't merely Nehemiah being dramatic. Nehemiah is reminding the people of something here. He is reminding them that justice and righteousness have divine consequences. It doesn't just have personal consequences. It doesn't just have political consequences. It doesn't just have financial consequences that the issues of justice and righteousness have divine consequences. What Nehemiah says, if you refuse to be just, expect to be shaken out of the house of God. And he invokes the name of God. Because this matters to God. And God uses Nehemiah to bring about righteousness and justice where the people were acting wickedly and unjustly. All because Nehemiah was willing to not just recognize the struggle, but to intervene in the struggle. And and we see even more evidence that it wasn't just a show for Nehemiah, for the people watching. In the third and final point, I'm going to condense this one for us. Here's the third thing that I want you to see, faith that prefers models righteousness, right? Because what Nehemiah could have done has been like, all right, we got it. They made a pledge. They made an oath, praising God again. We are on the right track and then forgotten all about it. But look with me at these last few verses of the chapter, beginning in verse 14. It says, furthermore, from the day From the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. 
the governors who preceded me had heavenly burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. What Nehemiah is doing is he's modeling righteousness for the people. So we learn here that for the first time, the king Artaxerxes didn't just send Nehemiah back to rebuild the wall. He actually named him governor. And so for 12 years, Nehemiah was serving as the governor in Jerusalem. And he serves in this role, first and foremost, see this, not out of a fear of Artaxerxes, not out of a fear of man, but with a fear of God. An awe and reverence for who God is and an understanding of the assignment God has given him. He is to rebuild the wall. That's why he's there. That's the assignment. But even focused on that task, he never lose sight of the people. What Nehemiah models for us is that a true love for God will always manifest itself in a love for people. In his daily life, Nehemiah models righteousness and justice. Because what those last verses tell us is that the governors who were there before not only took the tax, but they took extra for themselves. They took extra food. They took extra money. So not only are they having to pay tax to Artaxerxes, but you have corrupt governors who are taking more. Now, the text does make it clear there was some food that was allotted to the governors, but even what was legally allotted to Nehemiah, he refused to take for himself. A lot of commentators agree that that 150 officials and Jewish people around his table is symbolic language. One, because they didn't, there wasn't evidence that they had tables for 150 people back then. But two, that, that the, the picture that is trying to be portrayed here is that Nehemiah took the resources that were allotted for him and distributed them to all the people in need. Anytime he got it, refused to put a heavier burden on the people. So let me say this, how we live matters. God cares about righteousness and justice because it is hard to fight for justice when you are living as an unjust person. It is hard to call others to righteousness in their dealings when you are unrighteous in yours. Righteousness matters and justice matters. So I'm running out of time, so let me bring this to a close a little bit different of a way than I was intending to. Let me say it like this. I know, I know the climate of our day and age. I know that justice is a buzzword right now. I know there are some people who will hear this message and may be tempted to say, well, that's nothing but a woke sermon. It's nothing but social justice and the social gospel. But there are two things I want to say about that. Here's the first. I'm not trying to convince you to be in any political party. I could care less if you vote Democrat or Republican. I really could. I love the fact that our church right now has members who are, who are Democrat, Republicans, and Independents, and somehow we still love each other. I could care less how you vote because I'm just going to tell you not one of those parties has the, the market on holiness cornered. I'm not trying to convince you you should be liberal or conservative. 
I'm trying to do one thing from this pulpit. I'm just trying to, to preach to you what this book says. Now, you may have a problem with my interpretations at times, and that's fine. We can chop it up about that. But if you have a problem with what the book says, that's between you and God. Because I'll shoot you, you straight. I don't do what I do because you pay me to do it. I don't do what I do because there's nothing else I'm good at, believe it or not. I do what I do because I love this book and I love the God who gave it to us even more. And so if the Lord remembers me favorably for what, I'm done, what I've done, I'm good with that. And as long as God gives me breath in this body, I'm going to proclaim to you the God of justice and righteousness. And that's just what Nehemiah 5 is about. I'm going to preach to you the God of holiness and goodness. I'm going to preach to you the God of grace and mercy. But what I see in Nehemiah 5 is a recounting of a man who cared about the struggle of people, who intervened and stepped into that struggle, and who modeled righteousness every step of the way. And to me, this doesn't seem like woke ideology or social justice or social justice warrior rhetoric. To me, this just sounds like the gospel. Because Nehemiah is pointing to a better ruler. Nehemiah is pointing us to Jesus. Because the Jesus that I know is the Jesus that recognized the struggle. He knew that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. He knew that we were slaves to sin, blinded by darkness and on the road to death, hell, and the grave. But not only did he recognize the struggle, he intervened. Come on. Nehemiah, like Nehemiah, he did not hold his position as a place of self-serving privilege, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He stepped out of glory and into the world he created. He walked the very roads fashioned by his hand. He breathed the very air he created to sustain our lives. He lived in every way the life that you and I should have lived, one of complete obedience to the Father, but his intervention didn't stop there. Because he intervened and took the beating that I deserved. He intervened and he wore the crown that was made from my head. He intervened and carried my cross. He intervened and they put nails in his hands and they put nails in his feet. He intervened and they put a spear in his side. And as he intervened, he died the death that I deserved to die. But when he died, his intervention didn't finish. Because he stayed in that tomb all day Friday. And he, ta- and he stayed in that tomb all day Saturday. But then early, no, I said early on Sunday morning, he got up and he walked out of that tomb, having conquered death, hell and the grave with all authority and power in his hands. And not only did Jesus model righteousness, but for those who trust in him, he gives us that righteousness so that when the father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our shame. He doesn't see our unrighteousness or our injustice. He sees the righteousness of his son. Oh yeah, to me, Nehemiah 5 is a lighter, lower, lesser testimony of a higher, heavier, and holy redemption run by Jesus Christ. So a faith that prefers is simply a faith that looks like Jesus. Call you, call it what you want, but to me, it just looks like Jesus. And the last time I checked, a Christian was meant to look like Christ. So teacher, which command is the greatest? And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, our prayer is simple. 
Give us grace to look like Jesus. God, not first and foremost to look like a Democrat or to look like a Republican, not to look like a liberal or a conservative, and not to look like the world, but to look like Jesus and to have the same heart as Nehemiah, that if the Lord looks at me favorably at the end of all of this, it was worth it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.